Well, it is great to see you today. Hope you brought a Bible with you, because I did, so I hope you did. Somebody asked me, uh, it's been a while back, which do you like doing more? <laughs> Crazy question. Which do you like doing more, funerals or weddings? Well, that was easy for me, funerals. Well, I'll tell you why, because weddings, it's a script, right? And for those, I've performed some of your weddings, so the cat's out of the bag. It was nice. I mostly enjoyed your reception. But the wedding part of it, it's a script, and you follow it, and, and you get through it. And they're not terribly interesting to me. The ceremony part's not terribly interesting to me, um, maybe because I've done a few. But, but the, the wedding holds no fascination for me. Funerals, on the other hand, I feel like I can do something. At a wedding, I feel like an accessory. <laughs> I'm a necessary, I've got to be there. But at funerals, I feel like, now here's something where we can bring Christ into this thing. Here's, here's something that can be done to help a family in most cases. Not too long ago, I was trying to tabulate. I don't keep records. Some people do. I don't of things like that. But I'm guessing that at this point, I've performed about 400 funerals, something over that. And in those 400 funerals, I don't remember them all now, I remember a lot of them, things happen. There's a, a director at Hillcrest that I've done a lot of funerals with. He's kind of a character. He's one of the snappiest dressers I think I've ever known. His crease is always perfect and straight, and his polish on his shoes is good, and his hair is perfect, he's groomed, his tie matches everything. He looks like a mafia don. He's so dressed, well-dressed. But he's kind of a character, and right before every service that I've ever done with him, he will come to me as everybody is gathered, we're ready to start, and he'll come to me and get this close, and he'll say, it's showtime. <laughs> and sometimes it is a show. Again, at Hillcrest, I remember one a few years ago, uh, if, it were, if I were saying what would be the most unusual, this would probably be it. I did not know this family. Uh, I knew some shirt-tail relatives, and that's how I was called, but I didn't really know the people. And uh, I opened the ceremony, and, and uh, there was a vocalist, and she was singing, and she was very good, but there were two men kind of toward the back. It was an outdoor gravesite. There were two men at the back of the crowd, and it was a sizable crowd, and they were in some kind of verbal altercation. And it escalated, and it got louder than the vocalists. And I thought, well, now, now this is going to get interesting. And then they begin to shove each other. And then they took a few swings at each other. Well, the vocalists decided it was time to quit singing. And they moved, and they were moving my way as they were pushing and shoving and swinging and talking and yelling. And I was at the head of the casket, and they got very close to me, and one guy pushed the other guy and he slid in the hole. True story. He slid under the casket. And he was down there not very happy about that. I gathered as much by his choice of language that he was less than pleased. And what he was going to do when he got out of that hole to that other man oughtn't be done to anybody. 
And so the directors were in a little bit of a panic, and, and they were trying to rush that guy away. And finally, the guy crawls out from under, and he takes off after the guy that had pushed him under, and the directors get that guy that had been the pusher and put him in the hearse and whisk him away with the guy running after the hearse. Well, I figured at that point my services are no longer needed here, and I left. So things happen. But on the whole, to me, it's an honor to be asked to be a part of, of an occasion like that. And the truth is that unless Christ returns, there will be a funeral for each of us one day. True statement. There's a verse in the 89th Psalm. I think I shared it a little bit with you last week as kind of a preview to this morning. There's a verse in the 89th Psalm that says, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself? Remember how fleeting, how short my life is. This is a guy talking to the Lord. Remember how fleeting, how short my life is. Goes on to say, what man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the grave? You know, there's plenty of heartache and sadness around the death of somebody that we care deeply for, isn't there? I've seen it cripple people. The sadness that follows an unexpected death. I've seen it cripple people for life. I even remember one lady who died from grief. She couldn't get over it. So it can be very intense what happens around the death of somebody we care about. I, I can't speak for the unbeliever who don't have anything to fall back on. And I imagine that if one were an unbeliever and they lost somebody that they loved deeply, that that would be a, an especially awful kind of lostness. But for us, God recognizes that grief will be our experience. I, I love the Word of God, how it is always gut-level honest. It's always honest. And the Bible never says that we should not grieve. It doesn't say we should live in some kind of a crazy pie-in-the-sky atmosphere where, oh no, it doesn't touch me, I'm a Christian. No, the Bible levels with us. And says, yes, it supposes we will grieve. And that will be part of our experience. And at times it will be terrible. And it may be nagging when somebody leaves us. The Bible never denies that we have grief. But it does say, but don't grieve like those who have no hope. Because in fact, you do have hope. And so the Bible doesn't, sadden, doesn't minimize our grief but it tempers our grief. Don't grieve like those that have no hope. Now, today, I don't, I don't want to sadden anybody with the topic, and I sure don't want to minimize a loss that you may have experienced. In fact, I don't even want you to consider and think about the death of somebody that you love at all. That's not what I want you to do. Without grief, though, I want you to consider the day that you will die. It will happen. It's really hard for us to believe it, but one day it will happen. The day will come when you won't be here, when I won't be here. 
Now let that sink in for just a moment. What that means is there will be barbecues, and maybe at your place, but you won't be attending. And it means that for you, fussing with the preparations for that dinner or adding your special seasoning or sauce, it won't happen that day. There'll be Christmases, but you won't be receiving any ugly gifts or awful socks. And you won't be spending your days ahead of Christmas or weeks looking for that special gift, that right gift for somebody else. There are going to be invitations that are going to be sent out to weddings and birth announcements. And there are going to be baby showers for you to attend. If you're a lady, if you're a guy, there will be baby showers for you to avoid. But you won't know anything about it because you won't be here. And nobody is going to ask you, the day will come, when nobody's going to ask you to make a last-minute trip to the store because we're out of ice cream, would you mind going? There are not going to be any reminder calls from the doctor about appointments. And the familiar scenery between your house and your work or your house and this place that you know so well and certain landmarks are burned in your brain, that's going to be unseen by you. It'll be noticed by others, but not you. And the day will come when, hard as it is to wrap our minds around, we won't be here. Now, there are two questions that are put to us in that Psalm 89, verse 48. And we, we've got to answer those questions honestly. It says, what person can live and not see death? Nobody. Second question, who can save themselves from the power of the grave? Same answer, nobody. Now, I mentioned funerals. Jesus has an opinion about funerals. Did you know that? And he has an opinion about your funeral as well. You know how it is. If you know somebody well enough, isn't it true that you can know how they feel about something without them ever saying a word? You can know somebody that well, can't you? I relied on that when our girls were younger and they would come to me with a request. Can we do such and such? Can we spend such and such? Can we go such and such? And I knew it was a bad idea and that it shouldn't happen. But I knew what my wife would say. And so what I would usually do when they would come with a difficult request, I would say, well, if it were up to me, I would let you do it. But that's a mama question. And I would deflect it, you see. I knew without mama saying anything what she would say, without her even hearing the request, I knew what her answer would be. And so I used it as an occasion, among other things, to ingratiate myself with my children. And that way I could be a good guy and it didn't cost me anything. But I knew what mom would say. We get Jesus' feelings about funerals, how he thinks about funerals, even though there's, though there's no record of his spoken opinion. There's no, thus saith the Lord, here's what I think about funerals. But we do get his opinion. Did you realize, think of it, that every funeral he attended, and there's record that he attended several, every funeral Jesus attended, he interrupted by bringing somebody back from the dead. That's his opinion about funerals. 
It makes you wonder, though. He raises these people from the dead in the middle of the funeral. What did they do with all that potato salad they were going to eat afterward? I want you to turn to John 11. This is probably the most famous of his interrupted funeral stories. And it begins with a frantic request. Some messengers have come from his good friends, two sisters and a brother trio that were close friends of Jesus. He stayed often in the home of Lazarus, brother Lazarus, and sister Martha and sister Mary. And there are several accounts of things that happened in that home. He was very well acquainted. They were the closest of friends. And he gets a message from the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus that brother Lazarus is very sick. In fact, the messenger is frantic beside himself saying, you must come now because it is very grave and very serious. And he needs your attention now. Jesus is the healer. He's the friend of this family. And so it's it's correct to put the two together. He'll come immediately, but he didn't. He delays. He finds other things to do. And finally, his followers say, Lord, your friend Lazarus is sick. How long are you going to fool around here before you take off? And he said, it's okay. It's okay. Our friend Lazarus, and I love the way Jesus talks about him. He, he talks about him as, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. That's all. Well, a day or two went by, and he kept telling them, he's just fallen asleep. That's all. And I'm going to wake him up. And they said, well, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, well, isn't that a good thing? Because if you're sick, rest is good. He saw that they didn't get it, and so he had to tell them plainly, Lazarus is dead. In other words, you have waited intentionally, you have drugged your feet, knowing that he was gravely ill and needed your attention, could have been healed by you, but you've allowed him to die, and you know that, and we're still not hurrying? It wasn't until four days later, four days after his death, that Jesus gets there. And as he enters the outskirts of the town, word begins to go around that the teacher is here. And so Martha leaves her place in the house grieving for her brother who is gone, now buried. And she rushes out to meet Jesus. It says, on his arrival, on his arrival, Jesus and the men find that he's been in the tomb four days already. And a couple of miles from home, here comes Martha charging down the road toward him. And she's got an accusation. She went out to meet him, but not just to greet him. She left her home to come out and tell Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now that had to sting Jesus. This is a close friend here. If you'd been here, he'd still be alive. He's not. He's dead. It's your fault. That had to sting. And we know it stung because Jesus did what you do when something stings you. When somebody hits us with something suddenly and sharply like that, we often move into a, a mode where we just say a few words initially. We may erupt later on, but initially we're hurt and it's just a few words and Jesus says, your brother will live again. The dialogue goes on between Martha and Jesus. She says, I know, I know, I know 
Bible talk. He will rise again on the last day. I know all that. Jesus says, that's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever lives and believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me, listen, will never die. Do you believe that? In the face of your brother lying in the grave, do you believe that? Tough question. After a little bit, Martha leaves Jesus as he moves back into the city and she rushes back home. And there she tells her sister, Mary, the master is calling for you. And so Mary rushes out. And we know it's a set piece. We know they've rehearsed it. We know they've hashed it over and over again. And they've heaped the blame on Jesus while they've been at home waiting for him to arrive because she uses the exact same words as her sister. When she encounters Jesus, she falls at his feet and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same words. The only difference is Mary fell at his feet. That was a very comfortable place for Mary. She had done that before. And she falls at the master's feet. Jesus looks down and he sees her grieving, weeping. I told you, the Bible knows we grieve. And he begins to minister to her and speak to her. But not just with words, he speaks to her with his spirit because the Bible says in his own spirit as he sees her weeping, he's deeply moved in his spirit, and he's troubled. He's conflicted. He's torn. And he says, where have you laid him? Where's the grave? And they said, come and see. And Jesus gets to the tomb, and you know it's the shortest verse in the Bible. It describes what he did there in two words. Jesus wept. He wept. He wept for the grief that was in other people's lives. He wept for his friend, and everybody said, see how he loved his friend. And then the accusation again. This is the one that opened blind eyes, right? How come he didn't keep this man he loved from dying? Jesus walks to the tomb, and it says once more he's deeply moved. And now he positions himself in front of it. It was a cave, and it had a great stone laid across it to keep robbers and animals out, and Jesus commands, take away that stone. And some men lift it out of the way, but as they're doing it, Sister Martha objects and she says, Lord, is that a good idea? Because he's been gone so long, the odor is going to be bad. It's been four days. She's not sure he can do what he claims he can do, so better to keep it sealed. Jesus says, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And they took away that stone. And Jesus looked up, the Bible says, and he prayed a quick prayer, not for himself, but for them. And the prayer went something like this, Lord, I know that you have heard me, Father. You have heard me. What's that mean? means that Jesus didn't engage right then. He didn't begin his weeping right then. It meant that for four days he had been in prayer. Lord, you have already heard me on this matter. I know that you always hear me. And I say this now not for my benefit, but for yours and for the benefit of the people standing around that they might believe you. 
when he had finished that brief prayer, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. If it was like every other first century tomb, there were a series of steps going down. That, that corpse, former corpse, bound head and toe. Now he comes hobbling up those stone steps in the presence of all of those amazed people. And they see him wrapped round with linen strips and a cloth round his face. They can tell it's him because it's his grave, but there's nothing to indicate anything further. Lazarus, come forth. And out he comes. Out he comes. And then Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let him go. You know, we often hear that story at funerals and memorials. But did you know that this story is meant for the living, not the dead? Think of it. He's called you back from the dead. Remember the story of the waiting father with the two sons, one good, one bad, and the one bad runs away but comes back, repentant? And there's the waiting father, and when the son approaches him, he says, it's time to celebrate because this son of mine was lost, and now he's found, he was dead, and now he's alive again. There's an old song that says, how marvelous the grace that caught my falling soul. Our souls were falling, we were dying, and he brought us back. The greatest miracle, you see, isn't to heal cancer. The greatest miracle isn't when we pray as we've prayed in this church that somebody would have a new baby who couldn't have a baby and a year later there's a baby. That's not the greatest miracle. And financial miracles, when Jesus rescues us from financial ruin, that's not the greatest miracle either. The greatest of miracles is when he rescues us from spiritual death and when he recalls, he restores us to what he calls eternal life. That's the greatest miracle. And it's happened to you. If Christ is living in you, that miracle, the greatest miracle, life from death, it's happened to you. Like Lazarus. You see, you've been resurrected. That means that yours is a selected life. Did you know that? Selected life, yours. What's, what's Jesus say? To get Lazarus out of that thing and restore him to life. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Come out. Some people say that Jesus had to say it exactly that way. He had to put Lazarus' name first because if he had just generally said, come forth or put Lazarus' name last, then everybody in that graveyard that was buried would have risen that day. As he spoke those words of life. Lazarus come forth. That meant he chose that one. Lazarus, you, my friend, come out of there. And he chose you too for life. He chose you too to bring you back. We, we talk about people making decisions for Jesus Christ. And there's some truth to that. We conduct altar calls and appeals to accept Christ in such a way that we make it sound like it's my choice to meet Jesus. That may be a little bit skewed, 
Because the fact is, though we spend enormous amounts of time and effort telling people, hey, you need to meet Jesus Christ, the reality is that everybody one day will meet Jesus Christ, whether they want to or not. The Bible says the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question, though, is one of timing. When will you meet Jesus Christ? But that greater decision has already been made. And the greater decision is not mine to make. It's one that He's already made when He chose us. We talk about people being seekers. Those who are searching for meaning in life. Or they're searching for an experience. Or they're searching for God. I was one of those seekers. But I noticed this in my search that the Bible says, and it's true, I sought the Lord, but He found me. You see, the greater thing is that your life is selected, not that you selected him, but he selects you. You see, Lazarus, come forth. He calls us by name in giving us new life. This life that we have, for sure, this life in Christ is a choice one. It's a choice matter, but the choice is his. We've been chosen by a merciful God, like an orphan in the children's home. In comes the prospective parent and says, I'll take that one. He's chosen us. He's chosen us. So yours is a selected life. But yours is also new life, just like Lazarus in this story. In fact, the Bible says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives right now in you. Same power. The same power that caused that stone to supernaturally roll out of the way without the help of anybody, that frightened the Roman guards to death, that convinced the skeptics that he truly is alive and well. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead, it lives inside of you. Same power. Paul will say, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That same power that brought Jesus out, that same power that brought Lazarus out, it lives in you. Did you realize that the only kind of life that Jesus deals in is eternal life? He doesn't deal in any other kind of life. He only deals in eternal life. There's an interesting verse. You may want to turn back a few pages to it in John 5, same gospel is our Lazarus story, but in John 5, 24, there's some points made for us that we should not miss. He says in the 24th verse of John chapter 5, Jesus talking, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Did you realize that this verse is dealing with three time zones, past, present, and future? It deals first with the present. It says, those who hear my word and believe that I've been sent by the Father, they have eternal life. You have it right now. Eternal life isn't something that starts for you after you die. It starts when you accept Christ. It starts when He begins to live His life in you. At that point, your life is eternal. It will never end. That's why Jesus say, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You never pass from his presence. You pass from his presence in this life, 
But it's a continuum. There is no stopping. You close your eyes here and you open your eyes in His presence. You never die. The New Testament never talks about a believer dying, only going to sleep. It's temporary. But you awake in the presence of Christ. And so it's present. Eternal life is present. You have it now. But this verse talks also about the past and the future. Next, the future. Because you now have eternal life, you will not be condemned. There will never be a day that you will stand before God and He will say, now let me see here. Does this one pass muster? Does he get in? Does she get eternal life? That question has already been decided. You'll never stand before Him for that. You'll never be condemned. Never be condemned. The Bible says there's now therefore no condemnation. No condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Regardless of what people out there might say about you and the quality of your life, and they may not like you, it doesn't matter. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Just like he did in real time with the woman who was caught, caught in the act of adultery. And he ends up with her. Ends the interview by saying, neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. Jesus doesn't condemn anybody. He didn't come into the world to condemn anybody. And the Bible says that future for you will never involve judgment like that. There'll be no condemnation. Then it deals with your past too. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has crossed over from death to life. It's already a done deal. Death is already in your past. It's not in your future. It's new life. It's brand new life that he's given you. Once Christ lives in you, once, once the life you have in you is Christ's life, it's eternal life, and it doesn't start later. It's already now. And then finally, yours is an unbridled life. Look at that verse 43 in our story again. Talks about how Lazarus comes out of the tomb. But he comes out and and in my mind, he's wrapped head to toe. He's tightly bound. He's walking stiff-legged to get up those stone steps. But he's restricted. He has no freedom of movement. He has no freedom of movement until Jesus gives the command to unloose him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. You're to live an unbridled life. Think about horses that run free with no saddle, with no bit, with no bridle, with no halter. Think of a horse running free. Horses are at their freest when they run like that. They're unbridled. We're to live an unbridled life. No restrictions. Nothing to hold us back from God's very best. In this same gospel, in the 10th chapter, 10th verse, there's a verse that you would do well to circle, put a star by. If your mom lets you write in your Bible, underline it and memorize it. John 10.10 gives you Jesus' agenda and it gives you the enemy's agenda. It says that the enemy has come to kill and steal and destroy. Look around this world, read the newspaper, turn on the television. He's fast at work. His goal is to kill and steal and destroy any way he can. He'll use armies to do it. He'll use dope to do it. He'll use anger to do it. He'll use lust to do it. He'll use money. He'll use gambling. He'll use anything he can use to kill and steal and destroy. That's his agenda for your life. But Jesus says, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That you'll have the fullest kind of life, the freest kind of life. 
the most fulfilling, the most satisfying kind of life. That's what the Lord has in mind for you. That's his agenda for you. That's the agenda. The lover of your soul, it's been revealed. He wants you to have that kind of free life. He has come to set you free. Now look at this passage in John 11 again. The man is bound hand and foot with wrappings. They used to call it winding sheets. You know, one of the most uncomfortable sensations I get is when I wake up in the middle of the night and the sheets have got me all wrapped up and bound up. I hate it. It makes me lay there and think, when I die, cremate me. Don't put me in a box. I'll go crazy, I think. But this man is bound, bound hound and hand and foot with these, these winding sheets around him. It must be like a straitjacket. His hands, his feet, his face, it's all covered and wrapped up. He couldn't grasp anything with his hands. They're all bound up. He couldn't balance himself. He couldn't swing his arms. He couldn't lift anything. He couldn't walk worth anything. He couldn't convey emotion because his face is covered and bound. He couldn't show you what's on the inside. He was alive, all right. Jesus had called him out. He was alive, all right, but what kind of life would it have been to stay in those grave clothes that restricted his new life? Many Christians are Lazarus-like. Oh, you say, of course we are, and that's good. It's new life, unlike Lazarus. But too many are still wrapped up in the remnants of the grave. You, you may be bound by the past. It may be failures. What you once did, something still haunts you, and it keeps you from being as free as Christ wants you to be. You're still beneath that shroud, you see. Things that are holding you captive, they're restricting who you were meant under God to be, robbing you of ultimate freedom and joy. Beneath the shroud, though, there is a vibrant, resurrected life. It's pulsing. Again, the Bible says Christ in you, the hope of glory, it's there. Raising Lazarus, restoring life to Lazarus, as dramatic as that was, that wasn't enough for Jesus. He says in verse 43, take off the grave clothes and let him go. He wants to run around the county, let him go. This story is for us who are alive and living, you see. There are a number of tribes in different parts of the world that have an interesting custom. When a man dies, a woman dies, a bone is placed in their hand, a bone, dead, dried bone is put into the hand of the dead person, and it's put there as a passport into the next world. That's what they say. But let me tell you, we're not holding a dead, dry bone. We're grasping the hand of a living Savior here. So let me ask you, what holds you back? What's restricting you? Maybe it's a sin that you committed that in your mind is especially awful. Maybe it's a regret you live with. Maybe it was a a parenting mistake. 
Maybe it's a lie that you lived once. Maybe it's the feeling of not being good enough that holds you back, that restricts you. It binds you. Maybe it's what somebody else knows about you or thinks about you. It restricts you. It binds you. It holds you down. Jesus wants you to be set free. He wants you to be free. 